like to continue uh, this morning on the subject of the work of the Holy Ghost that we began last week. We'd also like to just kind of pause for a moment and realize um, I oftentimes take for granted what I know and where I've been. Now, that's not to say I know a whole bunch. I just know some things maybe that you don't know, and you know some things that I don't know. And sometimes I, I address a, a topic or I approach a topic from the standpoint, surely everybody knows this, or surely everybody has experienced this. That may not be the case with what we're talking about this morning and what we started with last week. So it's necessary to sort of ask a few questions as we begin what we're dealing with. Um, have any of y'all ever looked much into the charismatic movement? Do you know who Benny Hinn is? Some of you do, some of you don't, but sort of. Um, when we start looking into the work of the Holy Ghost, depending on which side of the fence you're standing on will depend on your perspective of what we're supposed to be teaching. The reason that I bring him up uh, is first off so you know who I'm talking about, but, it, but if, you, if you know who he is, it kind of gives you an image in your mind of what we're looking at or what we're not supposed to be looking at. Uh, you know, he claims to have great uh, prophetic gifts, and he, well, for example, he can take his jacket off and swing his jacket around, and as he does swing it around like that, it distributes the Holy Ghost into the congregation, and people in the first you know, five or six rows will fall back, slain in the Spirit. Some of you looking kind of cross-eyed at me when I say that. You act like I'm making this up. This was a little bit of the experience, just a little bit, not completely, but a little bit of the experience that I and a couple of the children had last weekend that I, I was telling you all about. I didn't want to go into great detail with it because it's not that important. However, you may ask yourself, What's the purpose of a topic like this anyways? We're not bothered by that. Well, we're not. But you may run across somebody out there who is involved with this, and they may ask you, why does it your church do this? It's important that we know why we don't do certain things or that we don't look for certain things in our worship service. Heresy in the Bible, heresy usually begins when you start spiritualizing the literal and literalizing the spiritual. Heresy usually begins when you say the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It really means this, that, and the other regardless of what it says. And that's always a problem. So, for example, in Luke 16, when the... The narrative is given of the rich man and Lazarus. We take that very literal. Nowhere in Luke 16 does it tell us that the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable. It just simply says there was a rich man who fared sumptuously and there was a beggar who sat at his gate daily. And at the end of their life, both of them died. The, the Lazarus was carried by angels into the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man died and was buried, and in hell lifted up his eyes, being in torment. I don't take that as spiritual. I don't take that as some mystical hidden lesson. I take it as a real story. That there was a real man who found himself one day in a real place of real torment. Oh no, that has reference to this, that. Actually, there is no hell outside of the grave and this, that, and the other. Is where that, when you spiritualize that and say it doesn't mean what it says, where you're going 
is the, the doctrine of no hellism. And that's not taught in Scripture. But that's a story for another time. If you want to over-spiritualize something, the book of Revelations is a good thing to over-spiritualize or, or under-spiritualize and over-literalize. The boys asked me a question one day. They said, there's this guy on YouTube saying that uh, the angels in the Bible really don't look like humans like us with wings. They look like these things with 47 eyes and 13 heads and this, that, and the other. So where do you get that from? Well, Ezekiel in Revelation describes this. The problem that you have is somebody who takes something that's supposed to be spiritualized and to make it literal. The concept of God, God having a head full of eyes, not like a mosquito, but a head full of eyes is the fact that he just sees everything is what that means. But when you deal with, with heresies, you, the problem that you're going to run into is somebody who over-spiritualizes the literal and over-literalizes the spiritual. The next problem, and probably the biggest problem that we have in, in discussing truth, not only amongst ourselves, but amongst those who are, say, outside the walls of the Primitive Baptists, is just simply the concept of experience. Somebody says, well, this is my experience, so this must be true. Well, <clears throat> if I said to you that uh, somebody's experience was they had a terrible marriage, does that mean all marriages are terrible? If I said to you that somebody has a great marriage, does that mean all marriages are great? No. Peter himself had a problem dealing with God based on Peter's experience. In Acts 10, when uh, Peter is up on the housetop and he has this trance and there's this the sheet that comes down in front of him filled with all manner of, of unclean animals and, and creeping animals, uh, and, and the Lord says to him, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter says, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my lips. He, I'm not about to do what you tell me to, God. My experience has been something else. You, that's, you see what Peter was telling God. And it's not only experience, but you know, it may be a, a heaping of childhood raisin mixed into that. When you start making experience the test for truth, you stand a little bit on shaky ground. I'm not saying that your experience cannot harmonize with the Scriptures. But that is the key, though. Your experience needs to harmonize with what the Scripture says. Not with what you attribute it to saying. Uh, The concept of heresy as well, though, there are, there are two ways of, of Bible interpretation, or there are two ways of, of uh, what do we want to say here, Bible study. One is eisegesis in the theological sense, and the other is exegesis. Uh, eisegesis and exegesis. Now, the concept of exegesis, uh, when you look at the word exegesis, you think about, you know, exit. Exodus. Exegesis is looking at a text and pulling out the truth the text is teaching. Eisegesis is going to a truth or going to a text and overlaying what you think the truth is. You've never looked at the scriptures and tried to find a scripture that backed up what you believed, right? Heresy most often is the fact we're going to go to the Scriptures and we're going to overlay what we think the Scriptures teach rather than simply just letting the Scripture teach what it teaches. When it comes to the work of the Holy Ghost and when it comes to the person of the Holy Ghost, I don't think this is seen uh, any more heretical than in this concept as to who and what the Holy Ghost is, and what does the Holy Ghost do? If you can see it in the world, and you can find it in God's book, it's close to saying, that's the Lord. 
But if you see it in this world and you do not find it in God's book, you might want to study it a little bit longer. When it comes to the filling of the Holy Ghost and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and the gifts of the Holy Ghost and the work of the Holy Ghost, He was given by God to the church. That's true. That's played out all through the book of Acts. God, even, Jesus even tells us that uh, the Holy Father will give the Holy Ghost to them that ask it. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, in some instances, it doesn't matter what it means. Because if God says the Holy Ghost is good for the church, ask of it and you'll receive it, it's a good thing for the church to have. Um, in, uh, in John 7, though, let's, let's just kind of begin here a little bit as we'll move then into the book of Acts and, and possibly to 1 Corinthians uh, in dealing with this work of the Holy Ghost. In John 7, I'd like for you to begin noticing in uh, verse 37. John 7, 37 says, In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Uh, here is an issue where this cannot be literal. It has to be symbolic or spiritual. Simply by the context of it. Because if it is literal, then all of you that believe on Christ, you ought to have this fountain and waterfall of water just flowing out your belly, right? Well, that's, that's certainly not a, a literal understanding of this. John, who's a Jew writing this, completely understands what Jesus is talking about. But he knows that there's going to be some Gentiles reading this. You're going to be lost. When you get to this text and say, what in the world is he talking about? Rivers of living water flowing out of him. So notice the very next verse is a parenthetical expression. There's a parenthesis at the beginning of verse 39. John writes, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Oh, okay. So... One of the gifts of believing or one of the, the things that comes with believing in God is the fact that the Holy Spirit now is functioning and moving. John knew of things such as uh, uh, Malachi chapter 3, I believe it is. I believe it's Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, where the Lord says, Prove me and try me, bring all the tithes in the storehouse, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. There won't be room enough to receive. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit or the coming of the Holy Spirit was oftentimes equated with the pouring out of water. Well, that's why Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, you, is he talking about baptism there? He's obviously not talking about that. He's talking about being washed by the Holy Spirit. The same washing of regeneration is spoken of in Titus chapter 3. The, the moving of the Holy Spirit is oftentimes equated with some sort of water or pouring out of water in the Scriptures. But I'd like for you to notice here that Jesus puts a stipulation on this. He says, or John puts a stipulation on this, that the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Now the question may come to that is, well, what does he mean by given? Because I think that we can turn to several scriptures in the New Testament and prove that the Holy Ghost was, was very active uh, in the Old Testament days. So, for example, one of them that you can turn to is Galatians, uh, Galatians 4, verse uh, 29. Speaking about uh, Esau uh, and Isaac, he says here in verse 28 of Galatians chapter 4, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, 
Even so it is now. So that tells us that the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit has been borning people again since the beginning of time. This is nothing new that started at the day of Pentecost. When Jesus told Nicodemus, uh, the wind blows where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh, nor where there goeth, uh, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He means exactly that. The moving of the Spirit is at the direction of God. And God borns again whom He will. And everybody that is born again is born again the same way by the moving of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, why is that so important? Well, because once you leave the four walls of this building and you get out into the religious world around us, they're going to have a hundred ways for people to get to heaven outside of Jesus Christ. Uh, people get to go to heaven because they're children and they don't know any better. Well, then let's abort them all and we'll populate heaven. Uh, people get to go to heaven because they're uh, in the foreign fields and the gospel has not gotten there, so they're ignorant. Kill all the missionaries then. You see, the problem, see what I told you last week is God said, preach the truth and love and then he called me. I'm arrogant with what I talk about. And when somebody makes a point, I go just to the farthest extreme and say, is this what you mean? Because that's where you're headed when you make erroneous, ridiculous, heretical statements. Uh, this person gets to go to heaven because, you know, they're mentally, mentally incapable of understanding. Well, time after time after time, you get out in the world around us and there's always something else other than the blood of Christ that gets somebody to heaven. And then when you get in the Old Testament, they were, boy, you're supposed to live by the light that you see. And this, that, and blah, blah. It just goes on and on and on. Christ said, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. It's really not that hard. So if I'm born of the Spirit by, or if I'm born again by the Spirit, you're born again by the moving of the Spirit, then Isaac in the Old Testament was born again the same way. The moving of the Spirit. So then you can also turn to 1 Peter and you can turn to 2 Peter. Let's turn, uh, start with to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Prophets in the Old Testament told, told us great things. But they themselves didn't quite comprehend everything they were talking about. And one of the clearest passages uh, that the Bible or brings one of the passages the Bible brings clearest to us, I guess I should say, is Isaiah 53. We read Isaiah 53 and we understand that this is a chapter about the crucifixion of Christ. We, we understand that that's what it means. But how do we know that? We know that because Philip joined himself to the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. And the eunuch said to him, does he speak of himself or someone else? Now, that may not be all that great of a question until you understand where the eunuch is coming from. He's going home, but he's coming from Jerusalem. Why didn't he ask the high priest back then? He's standing here in Jerusalem. Why didn't he ask the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priest there? You know why? The high priest didn't know. You know who knew? The gospel minister knew. And it says that Philip began at that spot and preached unto him Jesus. These Old Testament writers that wrote, they wrote by the direction of the Holy Ghost and had no idea what they were writing. They had to search their own writings to figure out what they were talking about. See, I don't do that nowadays. I write and I halfway know what I'm writing. I search your writings. 
I read Gill's commentary, Matthew Henry's commentary. I listen to, you know, David Piles. I listen to, you know, Joe Nettles. And to hear, hey, what are we talking about? We don't look to ourselves. We look at other people, right? That's, that's not what the Old Testament prophets did. They searched diligently, even though they prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Notice verse, 13, verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. I'd like for you to notice there, I find it quite interesting there that he calls it the Spirit of Christ that was in them. Now, is it the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Holy Ghost? Remember what we said to you a few weeks ago. We're going to drive ourselves crazy trying to separate the Godhead. Verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister these things, which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Unto whom it was revealed. The Old Testament prophets had things revealed unto them. That not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister these things. They ministered and spoke these things to us. Which are now reported. These things that the Old Testament saints wrote and ministered, they're now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel. You see that pattern? You see the pattern? Did I explain that fairly well? Clear as mud, right? You see the pattern that is there? But also, I'd like for you to notice here, the preaching of the gospel, if it's in clarity and makes sense, is accompanied by what? The Holy Ghost. This is also kind of another little thing, maybe that's, this is not common to everybody. It takes the unction of the Spirit for a man to preach. The gift of preaching does not come because somebody decided he's going to stand up and say something. The gift to preach comes because the Holy Ghost is with and on that person. And that is not a truth that is common to all religions. Hey, Bob, you can read. You come over here and say something. And Bob gets up there and stammers and spits and sputters. And, oh, wasn't that wonderful? No, it really wasn't. Bob didn't want to be there. You could tell he didn't want him to be there. And when he got done, none of the rest of us wanted him to be there. Now, is there a place for exhortation in the Scriptures? Absolutely. Every male member of the church ought to, have, ought to be able to stand for four or five minutes and talk about the Lord a little bit. Moving on, lest I, lest I chase another rabbit. Uh, now move to Second Peter chapter 1. Of course, I believe that we briefly touched on this uh, last week. Verse 21, uh, what are we at? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, so that spirit of Christ that was in them is also the spirit of the Holy Ghost. That's what the text says, right? So for Jesus to say that the Holy Spirit was not given, He must mean then that the Holy Spirit is going to be given in a different and more powerful manner than He was in the Old Testament. And I could agree with that. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> Just before Jesus ascends back to heaven, He's still teaching His disciples one more time. And He says to them, in verse 5 of Acts chapter 1, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence, or not too many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And actually, it's going to be about 10 days from now. Jesus spent about 40 days on the earth amongst his disciples. He went away, and 10 days later is the day of Pentecost. 50 days after 
Jesus' resurrection, so to speak. We have this day of Pentecost. And here's what happens is, in verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And actually, that phrase or that uh, that geographical description of uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth actually plays out in the book of Acts. Because he's going to be at Pentecost first. Then he's going to be at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, who is a Gentile. And then after that, it's going to go to the uttermost parts. It actually plays out through the book of Acts. You can study that and, and read that. Um, so when Jesus says he's not yet given, it doesn't mean he doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that he has not been working in the past. He's going to be working now in a much more powerful and evident way than he was in the past. Now, let's turn back for a minute also to John, to the Gospel of John chapter 14. When, when we speak of the Spirit of God, we are not speaking of some impersonal force. Because once you get out into the world, those little people that come around and knock on your door with their Watchtower and Awake magazines, they'll tell you about the active force of God. Which is not much different than, say, the spirit of Christmas. Y'all know the spirit of Christmas, right? There's one time a year where people start getting all these fuzzy emotions and these fuzzy feelings and they get this emotional sense of giving to other people. And it comes because it's just that wonderful time of year. That's not the working of the Holy Spirit. That's not what we mean by the Spirit of God. We actually teach that the Holy Spirit is a living, vital, personal member of the Godhead. Now, a lot of people ask us, well, what does he look like? Don't know. Does he possess a body like we do? Don't know. Don't care. You say, why not? Because God himself is called a spirit. Does he possess a body like I possess? He possesses some sort of existence. Whether it's a physical body or not, he still exists. And this is probably one of the hardest things to get across to us as Westerners is understanding that something can be real and not be material. Westerners have a hard time understanding that things can be real and not be physical or material. Like, this pulpit is real because it's physical. I can see it. Love is real, though. But now love is an emotion. But it's still real. Even though you can't open up somebody and say, oh, there's love right there. But it's still real. Well, when you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus talks about somebody who is real. Let, let me just ask, let me ask you. Why, why don't we just read this and see what we can come up with? A little bit of class participation here, maybe. John 14 and verse 16. Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Well, I like that word another right there. You see that? He said, I'm going to give you another comforter. Uh, what I also like about this is, and uh, you also notice it's capital C comforter. I'm going to give you another comforter. Drop down to verse 18. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Any, any questions about that? Yeah, but Jesus says, I'm going away. I'm going to leave you another comforter. And then he turns right around and says, I will come to you. Huh? Friends, if Jesus doesn't have the ability to be omnipresent, which is everywhere present and nowhere absent, these verses don't make any sense. And if Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are not all the same person, none of this makes any sense. 
back up. Verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Well, right there, you already got three in the Godhead anyways. I will speak to the Father, and the comforter will come. You got three working in the Godhead here anyways. But notice what he says here in verse 16, that he may abide with you forever. That who may abide? Group, group participation here. Who's going to abide? Who? He. Until the world loses its ever-loving, lasting mind, and he and she doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean, as far as I know, he is a person, right? Now, I do realize that men have cars, and they call it her. And men have guitars, and they call it her. And men have boats, and they call it her. You say, why are you talking about men? What do you think the focus of a man is? Her. I realize we give anthropomorphic identity to things that are in this world. But this is not anthropomorphic. Because He will abide with you forever. Verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not. So much for offering the Gospel to everybody. They can't receive Him. Why? Because they can't see Him. Why can't they see Him? Except a man be born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Alright, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So now what do we find is a characteristic of the Holy Ghost? He's a teacher. When was the last time you went to a classroom and you all went in, sat down, you all got a fuzzy feeling and got up and left and said, wasn't that a great lesson? No, the last time I went to a classroom, there was an actual warm body standing up front Speaking out of their mouth into your ears. That's what a teacher is, correct? We find here he's a teacher. And it says he will bring all things to your remembrance. This is how the New Testament can be completely correct, even though those disciples wrote it 10 or 20 years after the death of Christ. Who is reminding them about the man who walked on the shores of Galilee? Are they pulling this out of their own head? No, the Holy Spirit is bringing to remembrance the things that occurred. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. I was intrigued by that that word peace that's, that's thrown in there. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, And verse uh, 17, Romans 14 and verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Kingdom of God is not meat and drink. I was talking to a young man one time who's a Episcopalian. And I don't say that to throw off on the Episcopalians. I'm just trying to tell you who I was talking to to give you an image in your mind. He says, What I like about the Episcopals is, I like the ceremony, and I like the dress that the, the that the priests wear, and I like all the pomp and circumstance. I, I just I really get involved in that. The kingdom of God is not ceremony. The kingdom of God is not uh, walking through the motions and paint by numbers. The kingdom of God here is righteousness in the text. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost is seen the most, it is, it is seen in bringing a peacefulness and a joyfulness to those He resides in. Jesus says, My peace I live with you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. John 15, then 26. John 15, 26. Move from 14, 26 to 15, 26. 
He says, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So we've seen that the Scripture calls him a he, right? We've seen that the Scripture calls him a teacher. We've seen that the Scripture calls him uh, a reminder. Now we see that the Scripture calls him a testifier. When was the last time you had a testifying moment just because of a good, warm, fuzzy feeling? No. Testifying comes from people. It comes from what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced. I think the Scriptures are replete with the idea that the Holy Ghost is an actual physical member of the Godhead. He's not just an emotion. He's an actual, real person. If, if we can call him a person. And I, see, I use that term very, very loosely because I don't know what he wants to be called. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, do you think God wants to be called a person? I think he probably wants to be called God. At any rate, that's just my ramblings. Um, I'll also like for you to notice here. Let's turn to the book of Acts here. Uh, Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and move to the book of Acts here, because uh, the fingerprints of the Holy Ghost are all through this book. Um, here's another lesson that tells us that the Holy Spirit was active uh, in the Old Testament. This is Acts chapter one, verse fifteen. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, "The number of names together were about a hundred and twenty men and brethren." This scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. So there's something that the Holy Spirit or that David wrote in the Old Testament concerning one Judas who betrayed our Savior. How did David write this? He wrote it at the moving of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost spake this by the mouth of David. You catch what is going on here? Um, I'd also like you to notice something here. Um, in Acts, let's just kind of move through very quickly maybe with this. In Acts chapter 8, we mentioned earlier Philip uh, joining himself to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, this is Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> uh, what we want to look at now is just verse 29. Uh, verse 28, the Ethiopian eunuch was returning and sitting in his chair, read Isaiah the prophet. Verse 29, then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Do you notice what he said? Or what, do you notice what was written in the text? The Spirit said. And the Spirit told Philip where to go and what to do. Um, we may kind of get a little ahead of ourselves. Well, not really. Acts 13. Let me give you another one here. Acts 13. Verse 2. Acts 13, verse 2 says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Verse 4, So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed. And what do we get here? Primitive Baptists are not against missions. What? The primitive Baptists are not anti-evangelistic. We just don't want to go where the Holy Ghost is not sending us. We are against a board sitting somewhere, plotting out on a map, well, I think these people need the gospel. We're going to go there and preach and save them. That's nowhere taught in the Scriptures. That's what we are against. Men thinking they are the instruments to the salvation of other men's souls. The Holy Ghost is the instrument to the salvation of other men's souls. If you want the proper mode of evangelism, it's given to Paul when he went to the Corinthians. He didn't want to go to this wicked city. But God told him, he says, have no fear. I have much people in this city. So Paul, go preach to them. Now, if you'll, if you'll just pause for a little bit and you'll examine that text, 
God telling Paul, I have much people, so go preach to them. Is contrary to what you hear in the world today. What you hear in the world today is, Paul, I'd like to have much people in that city, so go preach to them so they can be my people. What do you hear from the true church? God has already got people in the city. The Holy Spirit has already gone ahead and marked out the souls made for eternity. Now, Paul, go preach to them and feed them. Go tell them what has happened to them. Go instruct them what has happened to them. Go show them the Lord Jesus Christ who saved them by His grace. So the Holy Ghost said here, separate me, Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Ghost sent Barnabas and Saul. Uh, Acts 15, verse 8 is a really uh, good phrase here. That they did something, and it says in Acts 15, verse 8, uh, verse, what did I say? 15, 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to me. Do you notice that? Uh, the phrase is that it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. In other words, don't do anything just because it feels good to you. Make sure it seems good to the Holy Ghost, and then you can do it. But how often do people ever really look at the Bible that way? Do, very, do people very often look at the Bible that way? They say, you know, Lord, if it's good to you, we'll do it. No, Abraham said, Lord, there's no sense in you bringing some special child in my life. I got Ishmael over here. Just bless Ishmael. Don't worry about what I've done, how I tried to get ahead of you. Just, just fix what I did here. And let that be the blessing. In Acts chapter 16, we'll just leave, we'll just leave that one alone. In Acts chapter 16, again with the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, this is just astonishing here. Acts 16 and verse 6. And when they had gone through out Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were, what's that next word? Forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Now, wait a minute. I, I thought God wanted everybody to be saved and everybody to go home. I thought, I thought the preaching of the gospel is, is, the, is the big key. Well, if the preaching of the gospel is the big key, why is the Holy Ghost hindering the preaching of the gospel? Question it. Keep reading. And after they were come to Messiah... They essayed to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Oh boy, there's just hindrances all over the place here. It tells us that it is the Spirit of God who is in the direction of blessing the ministers, not the ministers themselves. You can study your heart out. Burn your eyeballs out memorizing the Bible. But when you step in the pulpit, if the Spirit of God is not with the message, you won't even remember your own name. Been there. Done that. Seen that plane go down in flames. Been there several times to preach a message and realize when I got done, I think that was more on my mind than more on God's mind. Hey, that's just the way it is. Uh, Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul tells the elders at Ephesus to take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. I, I think we've laid out sufficient scriptures here to tell you that the Holy Spirit is not just some uh, moving emotion. The Holy Spirit is an active participant uh, in the church and in the life of the disciples. Um, let's back up now. Because what really kind of what really kind of gets on people now is, is the gift of the Holy Ghost. What exactly is the gift of the Holy Ghost? Well, number one, if you don't understand what the Holy Ghost does, you're not going to be able to see the gifts that he has. Now, in anything that I've laid out here thus far, and obviously what I've laid out 
It's not been comprehensive. It's not been a completely comprehensive idea. But anything that I've laid out for you here, has it been anything that was chaotic? Has it, was it anything that was crazy? Was it anything that you would look at and see confusion in any of the things that I've laid out to you? Mark 16. Here's another one of those texts where people do some eisegesis. They read into the text what they want to read. Mark 16. I've dealt with this text for 25 years now or longer. Uh, I went to a, a high school that was... Uh, moderated over by the Church of Christ. Now, if you don't know who they are, it's not that important, but i just tell you who I'm talking about here. They believe in baptismal regeneration, that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. If you're not baptized, specifically by one of their preachers, you're not going to go. Your Hell will be your home. And they use for that, Mark 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that because verse 17 says, and these signs, you listening, shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. And as far as the charismatic Pentecostal movement, they were as far away from that as we are. They would have not had any of this for a plug nickel. None of it. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So, if you want the baptismal regeneration in verse 16... You've got to take the Pentecostal gifts afterwards to go with it. You, that makes sense, right? Ah, now, other side of the fence. I've got people telling me, yeah, absolutely, yeah, look at that. In my name, they'll cast out devils, yeah. And they'll speak with new tongues. Uh, er, stop sign. Hold on, wait a minute now. If you're going to cast out devils, and you're going to speak with new tongues. I got a little box here. It's got a little present in it. And I expect you to pick up this little present in this box and start waving it around. See, some of them ain't going to have that. They call that a gross uh, interpretation of the text. I don't. I call it a literal interpretation of the text. Because you know what? This is played out in the Scriptures. This is played out in the book of Acts when Paul shows up on the shores of this little quaint little island over here and he's speaking to these barbarians there and as they're speaking, a viper jumps out of the fire that they made and latches on his hand and Paul looks at it and shakes it off into the fire and goes on preaching. And it sort of kind of gets everybody's attention there. They'd originally thought that Paul, I think it's, it's Paul and Barnabas, I think are the ones on this trip. They originally thought they are just a bunch of scallywag scoundrels who washed up on the shore and now all of a sudden this serpent jumps on him and he throws it in the fire and it doesn't harm him. Now they want to call them gods and want to call them Jupiter and Mars or something like that. Uh, how easily people are manipulated with their emotions and their feelings. Five seconds ago they were ready to crucify him. Now they're going to build temples in their honor. If you want one of it, you've got to have all of it. If you want to speak in with tongues, if you want to cast in out devils, if you want laying hands on the sick, you've got to have the handling of the serpents and you've got to have the drinking of the poison. And you know, there are some places in the hills where this stuff is actually played out. Y'all may not have ever heard this. See, this is what I said earlier. I said, you're not going to take for granted the things that I've seen and looked at. Maybe as a preacher, I've investigated things because it was interesting to me. You as, you know, members, you just, you know, you just come and you do your thing and you go, it doesn't matter to y'all. Not that you're any less of a Christian than I am. That's not what that means. But I'm like, you know, this, this is interesting to me why these people are doing this. And yeah, old brother Robert's up here with his 
with his shaking his rattlesnakes and he's up here drinking his battery acid. And oh, poor, oh, he was a great brother. He preached an hour and a half after that rattlesnake bit him before he died. Um, what, what people miss out on is that the book of Acts is a book of transition. It's not a pattern. It is not a one, two, three pattern. It's a book of transition. And I'd like you also notice that he said in Mark 16 that they would speak with new tongues. See that phrase, they would speak with new tongues? That's Mark 16, 17. Y'all don't hear that phrase, do you? What phrase do you hear nowadays? Oh, speak in tongues. Um, <clears throat> that's only found in a couple of places in the Scriptures. Overall, it's speaking with tongues. Here he says they'll speak with new tongues. Acts 2 that we covered the other day says that they will speak with tongues. And I'd like you to notice something here, just a little quick, quaint little uh, observation. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 verse 5, he says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Did, did everybody catch that? Who was dwelling at Jerusalem? Jews, and they were what? Devout men. Jews and devout men, right? You say, why, why, why are you on this? Acts chapter 10. When Peter is down at Cornelius' house, this house of the Gentile, Acts chapter 10, verse 44. And while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, now, Acts 10.45, And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. Alright. Who is at the house of Cornelius? Well, Peter's there, right? What is Peter? Peter's a Jew. And you notice that word, they of the circumcision? That's the New Testament way of referring to the Jewish people. So who's at Cornelius' house? Jews. You say, why in the world? Get to your point. Fine. First Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. When you find it, say amen. I want you to miss this. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. What are tongues for? They're a sign. Who looks for a sign? In the Bible, those who were not believers were specifically Jews. First Corinthians. Chapter 1, oh, about verse 19 or so. Twenty, no, twenty, ah, twenty-two. First Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 22. The Jews require a sign. See that? But the Greeks seek after wisdom. As long as God was dealing with the Jewish people, He was always in sign business. They were constantly asking Him in the New Testament, show us the sign of who you are. And what did Jesus say to them in Matthew chapter 12? Did He not say, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign? But no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonas. For Jonas was three days and three nights in the heart of the, heart of the well. Even so, must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. No sign is going to be given you really except the sign of the resurrection. The signs that Moses and Aaron did before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's wise men copied. Remember that? To a point though. To a point they could copy them. When he started turning the dust into little bitty lice and stuff like that, uh, they eventually said, this is the finger of God. We cannot go any further. But a charlatan can copy 
make you think he's doing great things of God when he's nothing but parlor tricks. But I'd like to see you get crucified. I'd like to see you die. I'd like to see you get put in the tomb. And I'd like to see three days later, you raise yourself and walk down the street. I'd like to see that. Not going to happen. The only sign that was given them was the sign of the prophet Jonas. And if you don't believe that Jonas came out of the well's belly three days later, you're not going to believe what I'm fixing to tell you now. That the Son of Man, three days later, arose from the dead and went about his merry business. The purpose for tongues was a sign. It was not a sign to the whole world around them. It was a sign to those Jewish people in the church right then. I'd like you to also notice. Now, <clears throat> we look in the Scriptures. There's at least... Uh, it's, it's either four or five, depending on how you divide it, different types of tongues that I found. Mark 16, verse 17, they would speak with new tongues. Um, Acts chapter 2, it says they would speak with tongues. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, you're about to read about unknown tongues. But you remember that Paul said in chapter 13, he said, though I speak in uh, chapter 13, verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So maybe there's four. If you put the tongues of men in Acts chapter 2 with many tongues, it's probably, obviously it's probably the same thing. Then you have the tongues of angels. There's at least four different types of tongues, including this one here in 14, which is an unknown tongue. You know, if this is a gift for the church, so be it. God give whatever gift you want to give to us. But I guarantee you, whatever gift that comes to the church is going to harmonize with what God's Word says. Now that I'm sure of. And it's here in chapter 14 that he tells us that God is not the author of confusion. Do you notice here that Paul said... Concerning this, uh, well, let's see, let me, let me just hit a couple of these. Notice verse 5. 1 Corinthians 14, 5 says, I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesied than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Evidently, there was something that was different about that first century church. Evidently, there was something that occurred in that first century church that may not be occurring now. There's a purpose for it. There's all, there was not only a purpose for it, but there was also a pattern to it. Watch this. Verse 9. <clears throat> so likewise, ye accept ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. How shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Verse 19. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Y'all ever been to one of these services? Y'all ever seen one of these services live and up close and in person? You read through the book of Acts, which we read to you already, various places. The Bible tells us that when Peter spoke these things, the Holy Ghost came upon those that were listening. As Peter was preaching, the Holy Ghost came on those that were listening. It's not usually the way that's played out in the world today. In the world today, the band starts up, and they get to loud, and they get to playing, and somehow mysteriously the Holy Ghost falls during the music procession. That ain't what happened in the New Testament. It was at the proclamation of the gospel that something happened. We're, we're Gentiles. And if we as Gentiles do as Paul said, Gentiles seek after wisdom. What did you come here to hear this morning? Did you come here to see a, a show? 
Did you come here to see a pony show? Did you come here to see a three-ring circus? What did you come here for? You came here to hear the Word of God preached. You came here to hear Jesus Christ magnified. And that's when Paul was at Thessalonica. He said, you know our coming unto you, brethren. How you received the Word in much affliction with the Holy Ghost. How can we tell that the Spirit of God is with us? But that the Word of God is not only preached in power, but what is preached means something to us. We can go out of here saying, yes, I see that. I see how it applies to my life, and I see how to make my life better if I just do it. Paul said, I had rather, I had rather speak five words. Why? Verse 12. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, Seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. And the edifying of the church in this, in this chapter is laid out as the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, secondly, verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. So, here's a pattern. You ever seen one of these meetings? And the supposedly Holy Ghost falls, what happens? Whole church goes crazy. And you got a little group over here on this side doing something. You got a little group on that side doing something. There's a little group up in front doing something. There's somebody in the back. All these little splinter groups break off doing their own special thing having their own experience with God. It's not what the text says. This is even a good lesson for old Baptists. You know, when you go off to the fellowship meeting or you go off to the association meeting, two preachers is sufficient, three preachers is pushing it, four is excessive. You know, you've been there, there's a whole house full of preachers. Don't want to offend anybody, so we'll put four up before lunch and five after. Woo! Been there, seen that. Uh, two at the most. Maybe a third. But you notice what it also says here? It says two, maybe three, and oh, by the way, you need to interpret for the congregation what you're saying. That very seldom happens. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> in this text also, Women are not to be prophesying in tongues or speaking in tongues either in this chapter. Go read it. Then, then what's happening, Brother Philip? What is going on out here in the world around us? Don't know right off. Can't quite put my finger on it. I do see a lot of people, though, in bondage. I see a lot of people wrapped up in something that doesn't quite harmonize with God's Word. You say, well, is God still going to bless them? He blessed Israel, didn't He? They're sitting down there at the foot of that golden calf. He didn't wipe them off the face of the earth. Why? Because there's one between Israel and God Make an intercession for him. The man Moses. Moses didn't listen to God when God said, Speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. Water still came out and fed the congregation, even though Moses was dead wrong in everything he was doing, right? Why? God still loves his people. God has overlooked. Well, you say overlooked. Christ has paid for so many things that I have done because God loves His people. God has permitted, suffered, allowed, whatever word you want to use, somebody like me to stand before a congregation because the blood of Christ has been shed for us. A lot of things I don't agree with. I don't agree with the circus. I don't agree with the noise. I don't agree with the confusion. 
On the other hand, some of these people that I'm talking about who are caught up in this are some of the kindest and most generous people I've ever met in my life. We could learn a thing or two from folk like that. We could learn a thing or two about being kind. We could learn a thing or two about shunning sin. A lot of them are shunning sin because they're trying to avoid hell or annihilation. We ought to be shunning sin simply because it displeases our Heavenly Father. There's a lot of things that we can learn from them. There's a lot of barbs I could throw at them. I could throw just as many at myself. The reason we don't do a lot of what you see in the world around us is at least at this point in my mind, it doesn't line up with the, with the Scriptures or what God's Word teaches. But I do know the Holy Spirit comes. I do know the Holy Spirit fills. He fills, this, he, he fills this place with His presence when there's peace and when there's joy. And He fills this place with His presence. When He uplifts the singing for where the Spirit is, there is liberty. And He fills this place with His presence when the preaching is joyful, it honors Christ, and it makes sense. And I don't think that the filling of the Spirit has to be reserved for one hour one day a week. You can have the presence of the Holy Ghost every day. You can meet with God in His Spirit and in His presence every day. When you're mowing your lawn, when you're raking leaves, when you're washing dishes, when you're pushing papers at work, you can do that to the glory of God. However mundane the world thinks that it is, you can do it to the glory of God and be filled with His Spirit while you're doing it. Thank you for your kind and patient attention.